In our last episode, we explored the fact that Christians actually need fiction as part of our daily lives. However, we could stop there and presume that we only need realistic stories, such as historical or contemporary fiction. Instead, today on Fantastical Truth, we will explore how Christian readers also benefit from fantasy stories. So much that we could even say that we need stories about fantastical other worlds so that we can pursue our chief end of glorifying Jesus and enjoying him forever. Behold again, Fantastical Truth, the podcast from Lorehaven. In this podcast, we find the best Christian-made fantasy, science fiction, and beyond, and we apply the amazing aspects of these stories to the real world that Jesus Christ, our author, has called us to serve. I'm E. Stephen Burnett. I publish lorehaven.com. I'm also the co-author of a book, nonfiction about fiction, called The Pop Culture Parent, Helping Kids Engage Their World for Christ. And I'm Zachary Russell, and I am also now writing articles for Lorehaven. I just put my first one out this week. And this is episode 51, Do Christians Really Need Fantasy? It's part of our Keystone podcast series called Fiction's Chief End. If you've read any of my articles for the past several years, you will find that phrase chief end sprinkled liberally throughout. By that phrase, we mean our highest purpose. It's almost like the ultimate question in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, what, is the, uh, what is the ultimate purpose of life, the universe, and everything? In God's universe, the phrase comes from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man, goes the question. And the answer to the ultimate question is not 42. It is man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This is a foundational truth behind everything in this episode and in this series we are doing about fiction's chief end, in which we explore the highest purpose we think that can be defended from Scripture. Why do we even have this thing called fiction? And from there, in our last episode, episode 50, we're going to now explore what is the chief end of fantasy. Do Christians really need fantasy? We're not so much talking about you know, whether fantasy is evil or good necessarily, but we're saying, hey, does fantasy actually provide something that Christians could say that we need? Daring to use that word. And we realize that a lot of Christians are going to have different opinions and preferences when it comes to fiction. I myself am more of a sci-fi guy, which we're going to talk about in the next episode. Some of our listeners are hardcore fantasy buffs, and that's great. But, you know, I know some in my life that are that are sort of like, eh, it's fantasy's all right, or it's kind of embarrassing, or maybe they're agnostic, like, ah, I, it's fine if you like it. But there, there's something I want to address right away, which is that there, there is this sentiment that maybe fantasy is wrong, you know, that maybe we shouldn't ever read fantasy. And Stephen, I stumbled across a few biblical texts. Now, I don't know if this is what a lot of people use to say fantasy is wrong, but this is kind of where I think maybe some people are coming from. These are coming from 1 Timothy. So chapter 1, verse 3 and 4 says, As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. These promote empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. And then in chapter 4, verse 7, it says, quote, But have nothing to do with pointless and silly myths. Rather, train yourself in godliness. End quote. Hmm. 
So do these passages mean we should not read fantasy stories? Are novels on the same level as silly myths, according to scripture? This is not a question I'm just blowing off. It's something I've been thinking about a lot. No, we should we should not blow it off. I mean, I know a lot of our audience is already presuming that fantasy is healthy and good and entertaining. But if by chance you stumble across this passage and you see the word speculation and you think, hey, that's that's what we can call these types of stories is speculative fiction. You know, does this apply? Don't dismiss the question, even if some cranky person from your church or in the comment section is saying, well, you, you're just up, up into your empty speculations. Don't blow that off. Take the question seriously. That's what we hope to do here. We think we can answer it with scripture, but don't just dismiss the question out of hand or accuse the person making it out of hand. Yeah, as I've read through these passages, I think the key word in it is teach, not to teach false doctrine. So what he is talking about hinges on the activity, like the application that was going on behind the scenes is that they were taking these myths, these silly myths, these genealogies, empty speculations, and using them to teach false doctrine. So yes, it is always wrong to teach false doctrine. And if you are using a fantasy novel to teach false doctrine, that is wrong. Yes. So let's talk about what we are actually going to talk about today, which is that scripture does seem to endorse fantastical imagination. We read the Bible by gods and the human author's intent, including genre. So all throughout scripture, we see these fantastical flourishes and that these are describing real truths, not false doctrines. You know, we've talked about Jesus' parables. There are the ordinary ones like the prodigal son. Then there are the, the ones where you know, Lazarus and the rich man die and they go into the afterlife. There is debate about where these real people and obviously the afterlife is real, but there's still a little fantastical element with that. And then we read about the um, you know, other stories like the, the 10 virgins with the lampstands. You know, this is just getting to his stories, but when you look at other things like the prophecies on Daniel, you know, the statue made of all these different elements or Revelation, for goodness sake. Obviously, there are some literal things in Revelation, but there are some very picturesque things about it. But I think the clearest example, and we mentioned this on the last episode, is Judges chapter 9, where Jotham tells a fairy tale about talking trees to the, uh, I, I don't know how to pronounce this, but the the Shechemites. Shechemites works. Yeah, the, yeah. the phrase actually we read in Judges 9, 7 through 15 is, the, the leaders of Shechem, you know, the, the context okay. is he's, he's trying to warn them about a battle they must fight. And so he's talking about, well, you can go read it, uh, but he's talking about, well, you know, one of these days, you know, the, the, the trees got together and they started talking and, you know, and the bush said this and the tree said that. And, you know, Middle Earth fans here are seeing an entire intmoot taking place, uh, scripture oh, yeah. <laughs> style. You cannot read that story. Uh, without having a, a fantastical cultivation in your imagination. Like in order to do justice to what is in scripture, you have to be willing to get into a fantasy genre right there, you know, going back uh, millennia before Jesus started telling parables. It's right there described in scripture. It's not prescribed. It doesn't say, go now you also and, and read other fantasy stories. But the least we can say is that scripture is not opposed to the idea of a fantasy story. And this is basically an Aesop's fable style fairy tale here. 
And the only thing that's missing is a talking tortoise and a talking hare and a little lion with a thorn in its foot. It's it's very fable-ish. So, Stephen, do you think just this this one fairy tale, this one fantastical story being in the Bible, is it enough to just say, okay, fantasy in the Bible, there we go? Well, that goes back to this division between prescriptive and descriptive. Uh, Folks who read the Bible carefully, who take the words literally, that is according to the original intent of the genre of the capital A author, God, the Holy Spirit inspiring the Bible, and the human authors who were writing down what God wanted them to communicate. Folks who take all of this seriously know we have to read the Bible according to its intent, which includes reading what is descriptive and reading what is prescriptive descriptive means that we are reading about something that happened, maybe something terrible. There's the old joke, and Judas went out and hanged himself. You know, (laughs) that is descriptive. Uh, Just because it's telling you that this happened doesn't mean this is something you're supposed to imitate. See also a bunch of the accounts of Old Testament saints taking multiple wives. There's nothing in the Bible that indicates this is supposed to be everything, uh, supposed to be something that every Christian or every person should do. What is prescriptive is Husbands, love your wives. Wives, love your husbands. You know, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That stuff is prescriptive. And different types of Christians may have, you know, different ways of describing that. So it's actually a starting point, but it's not sufficient just to say, well, fantasy is in the Bible. Okay. But who wrote the Bible? God. God has certain rights and privileges that people do not. And in this case, you could say that, oh, maybe. God, it's God's universe. It is a supernatural universe. Maybe God has the prerogative to write about miracles and worlds. After all, he's describing real things that happened, even if it was a real person who told a fantasy story in the Bible, or if it's uh, Jesus, God himself, telling stories about, you know, rich men and talents and inviting people to weddings. And then if, you know, one guy is not wearing the proper robe, Uh, Then suddenly, magical realism, you throw him out into the outer darkness. Whoa, where did that come from? Uh, It's almost (laughs) like kind of a Twilight Zone element there in the Bible. It's very magical realism. There's suddenly this supernatural element that seems to be breaking into this otherwise contemporary story, although it is set, I would note, in basically a distant land. Jesus may well have started that paragraph with once upon a time in a land far, far away. Uh, The distant land, I think, also appears in even the otherwise normal prodigal son parable. God has the right to write those things. It doesn't necessarily mean that we do. So it's a partial answer at best uh, to to say, well, fantasy is in the Bible. I think we need to go a little bit further. I think Christians who want to defend fantasy need to go a little bit further. We also must go further than talking about how how well fantasy helps people. Our own experience getting into fantasy and then, you know, seeing the world in a new light and then understanding human creativity and all those sorts of things. I think that is a, um, a partial answer, a partial defense, but it's not good enough. I do need to see something a little bit more direct. A case needs to be built, I think, more foundationally on the scripture. I also think uh, that if we are to try uh, kind of that, um, that literary criticism perspective, well, the fantasy helps us to see more of the human condition and uh, fantasy you know, awakens this, uh, the, you know, the spark that's in us you know, and the Imago Dei and you know, even some Biblical sounding arguments, which are biblical arguments, I think don't go far enough. Uh, And I think Christians need to get a little bit deeper in order to help rightfully persuade our brothers and sisters in Christ that fantasy, that is stories that include the supernatural elements, those are, I would dare to say, needed 
uh, by Christ's people in order to do what God has called us to do. It may not mean you're reading fantasy novels all the time, but fantasy as a concept is required to be a Christian. Even our frequent quotes of Lewis and Tolkien can almost uh, err on the side of human reasoning rather than biblical reasoning. Now, I think they're correct, but I realized when I was putting together the notes for this topic uh, that I, I didn't want to do just another episode where we quote Lewis and Tolkien the whole time. Uh, I love those guys. Bless their hearts. <laughs> they are saints. Uh, they're basically the patron saints of Christian-made fantasy. You know, we, we hold them in the highest respect. But if you just throw some Lewis and Tolkien quotes at it, there is the possibility that even those quotes can become the baggage that Lewis himself uh, talked about. Okay, well, here comes another C.S. Lewis quote. You know, I really don't get this fantasy thing, and I'm tired of them just throwing a C.S. Lewis quote at me. Lewis himself would not throw quotes at other people. He would try to think of a, a cleverer and a, um, and a more unique and creative way to get past those, those watchful dragons, you know, those uh, defense mechanisms that people have. I love this topic, though, why we need fantasy as Christians. So we're actually going to freshen up a little today. Uh, we're going to explore it in this way with the three points. The first point, point one, fantasy trains us to imagine God and his true story. Number two, fantasy trains us to imagine Jesus and his heroism. Point three, fantasy trains us to imagine our world and its peoples. So before we explore those three points in depth, uh, we're going to stop by our concession stand on Fantastical Truth. Uh, the hot dogs just got off the grill and uh, we have some nice, refreshing concessions. Concession number one, we're actually going to minimize, as I said, the Lewis and Tolkien quotes in this one. Uh, those quotes are well and good. We love them. Uh, we share them frequently, but we would like to take a little bit of a different approach now, especially because we do want to reach out uh, to Christians who may not be familiar with or may actually be defensive against, oh, here comes another Tolkien quote. Yeah, yeah, you catastrophe. I've heard all that before. We're going to try a, a little bit of a different approach in this episode. Uh, secondly, we're not actually exploring the specific issues of fictional magic or those types of you know supernatural elements in fantasy story. We actually just did that uh, last fall on Fantastical Truth in our fictional magic series. We'll link to that in the show notes, I think. Either way, you can go back and look for that topic. Also, do note, again, our emphasis on God's glory as the chief end of every person. Every person who is literally created by God for the highest purpose of glorifying God and enjoying him. Our highest purpose as humans is not to be entertained. Our highest purpose is not even to make stuff, to create stuff dare I say it, but our highest purpose isn't even evangelism. And if we elevate evangelism as if it's the only thing we're put on earth to do, uh, then we're actually going to end up doing evangelism poorly or not at all. And our highest purpose is not even to become better people, to be morally edified or taught through fiction or nonfiction. Our highest purpose is to, yes, do these things, but for the highest purpose of glorifying God and enjoying him forever. Other episodes, uh, we'll be defending this uh, the statement biblically. If you're interested in any material about this idea of uh, the chief end of man, uh, we can certainly link to those in any discussion about this episode. Uh, suffice it to say, first things must go first. And the first thing that we emphasize is glorifying God above all things. That's the reason why he made us. That's the reason why he is remaking us in Christ and our salvation as Christians. And finally, uh, we are going to defend all fantastical stories in this episode. And, you know, the way that I think of it, I actually use the word fantasy to describe any speculative story. Uh, the word speculative to me can actually be a little bit vague. 
That's why we tend to use the word fantastical, just to kind of encompass whether your story has superheroes in it, whether it's an alternate history, a fairy tale retelling, uh, a parable set in a distant land, a fantasy proper with dragons and castles and wizards, or a science fiction or space opera story, which is basically fantasy with spaceships, or a harder science fiction story set in a potential future for Earth where we're colonizing other worlds or something. All of those, I think, actually fall under our discussion today about Christians needing to think fantastically. This includes, but is not limited to, the fantasy genre proper, uh, something that you would put under the heading fantasy in an online or physical bookseller. Well, and just to be really clear, when we say fantasy, we don't just mean the Tolkien or the other, you know, Wheel of Time, Brandon Sanderson kind of fantasy. Of course, you know, you could make the argument that really any fiction story is speculative and fantastical because it involves a world that doesn't actually exist. But, you know, we are talking about worlds that couldn't exist. You know, the things that are just way too strange for the normal world. And technically, even something like historical fiction, if you if you really get down to it, every historical fiction is alternate historical fiction because you're positing that characters existed in the past who did not. So even if you leave the technology the same and do all your research, every historical fiction, you know, may as well have airships and you know steampunk of some kind uh, because it's it's alternate history. Well, especially when we get into Abraham Lincoln being a vampire slayer. But I had heard that. <laughs> so let's talk about this first uh, big section here. Fantasy trains us to imagine God and his true story. God is utterly fantastical. We see that in the Bible. True. True. God exists. He is real. He is beyond our understanding, but he wants us to know him. Therefore, uh, we suggest that only a fantastical account only having our minds and hearts aware of this fantastical reality can we best imagine God as he has revealed himself. The best argument, I think, for fantasy as a genre, as a, as a, a way of seeing the world, is not that scripture has fantasy in it, but that the Bible itself, which describes reality, is itself fantastical in genre. There's a fairy tale in Judges 9, and there are fantastical elements in Jesus' parables and in the prophecies of literal events. But the big story, all of the Bible, from Genesis 1 to Revelation's conclusion, all of that is a great, sweeping, fantastical epic. And because Christians are called for happiness and holiness in Jesus to accept all of the Bible as the Word of God, we must see the world as a fantastic, not materialistic, not normal reality. The weird is the normal. And if we are being biblical, we ought not view God in imaginations that are only shaped by nonfiction or even what we might call normal fiction, contemporary or historical or something that doesn't include some hint of supernatural elements. God himself is supernatural. We must accept his self-revelation about his nature. Thus, we would say that fiction that includes these supernatural elements helps us to train to imagine who God is as he has revealed himself. This training is not optional for the Christian. It is essential. It's something that we need to do, uh, not an option that we have. Uh, we must not only believe that God exists, but we seek to know him personally as he has revealed himself. 
And many gifts that God has given helps us to do that, including fiction and including, we would say, fantastical fiction. You think for a second about what it means, you know, the definition of who God is. We're talking about an entity who's not confined by space. He's not bound by time. He's not restricted by any of the laws of physics. He has these powers beyond what we can understand. And he has a mind of his own. He can't be controlled. He can't be bribed. There's nothing that can defeat him or thwart his plans and his purposes. And by the way, he's already decided all those before there was time in eternity past. So, you know, the fantastical creatures that we read in stories, the fantastical beings, they, they don't have anything on God. You know, even the final, the boss monsters, the big bads of stories, they completely pale in comparison. You know, even the Q continuum, they, they have nothing on God. The best I could understand, not even Q could predict the future. So he may be omnipotent, but he was not omniscient, if I remember correctly. Uh, this is a Star Trek Next Generation reference, of course, by the way. The big point here is that Christians, we know that we are called to do theology. That is literally the study of God. Theo, God, logy, study of. To do theology biblically, you need some kind of fantastic-shaped imagination, whether that is fantasy novels with some creature or spaceship on the front, uh, or just an awareness that we are living in God's fantastical world. Scripture's truth must shape our imagination, and stories help us with that training. And we must imagine not only God, of course, and his nature and his supernatural essence, but his story, the plot line that Zach was talking about, that God is predestined from eternity past, and that is our fantastic true life gospel. Others have spoken the truth uh, that the gospel can be understood as the ultimate original myth that is true. Some people call that the, the monomyth, you know, in, in, our, in our lesser human stories. This is the story of the hero who comes from obscure origins, and then there's an inciting incident, and I'm definitely simplifying here. There's a mentor figure and a fall and training, and then eventually some kind of metaphorical or actual death followed by a resurrection or a return point from that cr seeming crushing defeat. Uh, and then, you know, the hero wins and possibly the, the, you know, there's balance to the force or the land is restored or something like that. All of those faintly echo the gospel. Even stories that were made before Jesus came to earth couldn't help but reflect that finished gospel in some capacity. That's because people are playing with the components of God's universe. If we're smart, if we are paying attention to those little symbols that God has built into the world, even the simple ones like the seed and winter and all of those motifs, uh, we're going to catch on a little bit. We're going to be paying attention to God's plot. And how much more then can the Christian who has the, uh, the revealed mystery of God and the gospel and God's word, how much more then can we appreciate these echoes in other fantastical stories made by people and then use those as training? Uh, this is the word I keep going back to. Other stories, by the way, including the, uh, the contemporary stories or the mysteries or the suspense or the historical ones, all of those are still fantastical in a sense because they are stories within a story. And the ultimate capital S story is God's story set in this fantastic world. I would actually say that fantasy is the default genre. It is a, the actual normal baseline expectation for 
reality and for fiction. Fantasy is the genre of genres because the only true fantastical world is, as far as we know, the world in which we live right now, the world that God has created. So at this point, listener, you might be sitting on a tack and wondering, wait, are Stephen and Zach saying the Bible is just a fantasy novel? Like it's all just made up? Okay, no. <laughs> First part, we yes. Are, Last part, no. <laughs> we are not your you know, college professor of biblical studies that doesn't think any of it's true and is trying to deconstruct it for you and you know, just be a big party pooper about the Bible. No, we absolutely affirm the Bible is 100% true. It is real. It is real story, real history of what happened. But let's think for a minute about what that history means. It means that this universe is not simply a clock that got wound up and then God disappeared. We're living in a universe where God himself enters into it in fantastical ways. You know, he, he sort of breaks the simulation that we're, that we're living in. And, you know, you think about Jesus' miracles. Okay, this is really funny. I, I've heard people say about different Jesus' miracles, oh, I can't really believe that. Like, really? You know, he, he put mud on someone's eyes and then he got his sight back. Okay, I don't, I don't know about that. Or I know someone that wrote a seminary paper on the, at the end of Matthew, it just kind of casually mentions that all of these people came out of their graves you know, after Jesus' crucifixion, that there were all these just other resurrections that happened. And it's like, wait, what? <laughs> and, and it doesn't tell you anything else about that. You look at some of these things, you're like, oh, that's kind of embarrassing. I don't know if that really happened. Okay, we affirm everything that the Bible says. So just, just to clear that up. But let's think about this for a second. Jesus is the, the only man ever born of a virgin, and we're, we're going to limit him somehow and the miracles he was able to perform? No, of course not. Like, nothing is too hard for God because he is outside of this whole system that we live in, this material universe. He is above and beyond it. He created it. And the fact that he comes into it, I mean, that is the fantastical element of this real story that we're living in. The only one limiting God is God himself. God has the right to define himself. And you even see that in the ways that Jesus chose to limit himself. Uh, Jesus was, is a man. Uh, that itself is limiting. You know, he's emptying himself of some divine prerogatives that uh, Jesus needed to go rest somewhere. There were some certain places where Jesus would not do miracles. Every one of Jesus's miracles had a point. It is a very tightly constructed plot that Jesus did, surprise, surprise, where he wasn't just flinging about miracles extraneously like uh, some professing Christian miracle workers will do now. Uh, he was not flaunting it. Uh, he was extravagant with his grace in healing people and using that as examples of the kingdom of God breaking into reality. But he was limiting himself there. And that's how we ought to see how Jesus does his miracles. That's how we ought to see. Uh, Jesus as the ultimate hero, the ultimate hero acting out, bringing the gospel as the hero of God's story in God's fantastical universe. Yeah, so that, that leads us perfectly into section two here, which is that fantasy trains us to imagine Jesus and his heroism. So again, understanding that Jesus is the true hero, the true myth. Oh, looks like we got some Lewis and Tolkien in here after all. <laughs> Jesus is the true myth on which all of the false myths are based in part by intention or accident. 
Jesus is the true one, but the fictional heroes in fantasy and not just general fiction can help us train to see Jesus because the heroes in fiction can't help behaving in what I would say, a, you know, kind of meta-human, not meta-human, meta-human or super-human ways. I don't mean superpowers. Uh, I don't mean, you know, folks in, uh, in capes or in movies. I mean more like th these are exaggerated humans. You know, fiction presents a heightened reality, uh, a heightened version of reality. Cutting out the small talk, if it's good fiction, you're cutting out the small talk, uh, you know, you're combining all the fight, uh, all the trainings into a training montage. You know, you are condensing reality and heightening reality in general fiction and even more so in fantasy, which shows exaggerated versions of humanity. Heroes are usually easier to spot. Villains are usually easier to spot. And even the gray areas are enhanced. It's really easy to see most of the time, I would say, that uh, that the gray areas are the grayest, you know, whereas in real life, sometimes you can't tell. You know, stories help to bring those things into focus. We can see these things more sharply. We can see human beings and heroes in greater relief. And the good traits that we see can help us train to think of Jesus, the ultimate hero, the ultimate man, son of man, son of God, God become man. Here, I am speaking exclusively in human terms, although, of course, as fantasy fans, we cannot help but also think of a certain lion. Usually when we're talking about Christ-like characters, the Christians cannot help and should not avoid going to Aslan, the, the, uh, the famous Christ type lion of C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, we love Aslan. He is he's archetypical of the fantasy uh, messiah type figures. I would say that he is in his lionness most like Christ, most directly like Christ. But any good fantastical story, including a fantasy proper story that has good heroes on a journey uh, who are pursuing virtue and mortifying their their sin, you know, rejecting the dark side or whatever. Like any good hero like that can also train us to think about Jesus. Even in the act of enjoying going along with that hero's journey and paying attention to the world, which we'll talk about in a moment, when we're letting go of ourselves, when we are in effect practicing, we're imagining what would it be like to go along with this hero and serve this hero if we are forgetting ourselves and instead living in this world, not trying to use it for our own ends, but actually humbly receiving this world and receiving this other story, that's an act of training. I'd say we are training our imaginations when we don't project ourselves into the story. We're not pasting our own faces and our own issues and our own backstory on top of the hero. Instead, we can become humble if we're reading or enjoying a, a fantastical story correctly. Uh, as with general fiction, but more so in fantasy, because the characters often more directly resemble the ultimate fantastical hero, Christ. I would say, by the way, really carefully, that this vision of how to read fiction does contradict the way that some fans or anti-fans are reading stories now. Uh, too often, especially on the internet, when people get into stories and share them a lot and are doing fan art and all of that, uh, there's too much of a tendency, I think, for people to project themselves into the story. I'm not following this story, such a fan says. I'm not following this story because I want to know what happens to the hero. I want to see the hero as a version of me. And you know, people even writing fan fiction will sometimes do a self-insert uh, or they will remix the story in different ways. 
it can, not always, but I think that can approach the wrong way of seeing a story. You know, this story is a tool for my purposes rather than surrendering my purposes and just going on the journey, just ready to behold what the author has done and what the hero is going to do. Good readers, I think, do not constantly project themselves on top of characters like this. Instead, we learn from these characters. They are not our servants. They are our mentors. The character, the author should function, I think, for a good story, should function as the sensei. Uh, we need to be the student and we need to learn from this master. Maybe eventually we'll surpass them, but oh, as uh, can sometimes happen in some of those kinds of stories. But I think even this act of humbly receiving the hero, receiving the character in this story can help us humbly receive and learn from our hero, Jesus Christ. Fantasy has real purpose and real benefit to our lives, especially as it comes to imagining the truly fantastical nature of Jesus. Well, we know that Christians are commanded to imitate Jesus. Jesus himself is making us more like him, preserving our individuality and our individual gifts in the different ways that we reflect God's glory back to him. But we're still being conformed to the image of his son if we are Christians, if we are in Christ and in his church. We know that we're commanded to imitate Jesus. And in order to do that, you basically do need a fantastic imagination. Again, not meaning you have to read the types of books we like, but we can defend fantasy as an idea, as a concept by saying that in order to become more like Jesus, you do need this. We need scripture's truth to help us imagine truthfully Jesus and his gospel but real world people in our fantastic world can help us do that. Scripture does command us to look to the people who are more like Jesus, you know, not just directly to Jesus, whom we cannot see, but we have his action in the church. If you are in a good family or a basically good church, you already see examples of Jesus reflected in the faces of those around you. Fantasy heroes are just one other degree of seeing Jesus's reflection in these people, especially. That's helpful, especially uh, if you're in a situation where you don't see a lot of Jesus in the people around you. Uh, increasingly, as a society you know, has different kinds of corruptions, uh, it is harder and harder uh, to see Jesus specifically in the actions of some people. Uh, in that circumstance, fiction can help even more, and fantastical fiction in particular can help us to imagine you know, this is what Jesus would do. This is what Jesus looks like you know you, you've obviously got to clean it up a little bit you know a fantasy hero is going to be flawed uh, a fantasy hero is going to struggle against the dark side you know jesus confronts the darkness and sin and the devil but it's never a you know it's never that kind of struggle he's in no real risk of being tempted fantasy heroes are a little bit different but you can still use them to catch a glimpse okay this is what jesus is like this is what the ultimate human should be like and especially good versus evil tales in fantasy, they more closely approach and reflect the gospel than general fiction. Uh, that distilled nature of their reality can present you know, light versus darkness, you know, the dark lord versus uh, the wizard of light. You know, all of those, particularly in fantasy genre proper, lots of Christians can testify and, and have rightfully said, you know, I knew the gospel. I was a Christian. But then when I read this book, this fantastical book, you know, not just Lewis and Tolkien, but many, many others, suddenly they began to 
feel this more acutely. They knew the truth in their heads, but these images, these imaginations helped them to feel it, to see it. Uh, and, and in that order, I think is good. You know, we, we need to just pursue the truth, even if we're not feeling it. You know, God must be worshiped. The Bible must be read. We must read the Bible, worship God, even if we don't feel like it. But the feelings should follow. They absolutely must follow. Uh, we're not going to have that problem in eternity of that, you know, head-heart divide. Fantasy and fantasy imagination help us to awaken those rightful emotional responses to the things we already know to be true in our heads because the Bible tells us they are true. You know, one thing that occurs to me is that we are always already using our imagination. You know, so as we talk about, hey, this is, fantasy helps us expand or, or use or train our imagination. People might be thinking, well, but what's the point? And the point is that every day you're using your imagination in some way or another. Stephen, when I was back in college, th there was some situation that happened and uh, I, I was getting very, feeling very bleak about something in my life. And my roommate, John, looked at me and said, well, the problem is you're imagining a world where God doesn't exist. And I've always thought about that. <laughs> and, and surely you can read lots of novels where it's a world where there is no God or God is not involved. And that can sort of help you see, oh, well, this is not the real world because the world I actually live in, God is very active. And, you know, our imaginations tend to go to these extremes, especially in a pandemic. You may have already experienced some terrible things and you may be worrying uh, very rightfully so about things getting worse. And so what I think the value of fantasy is, is it trains us to imagine good outcomes to to imagine how god could get involved you know how something amazing and miraculous could happen because too often you know the default is the imagination goes kind of the opposite way into the worst possible scenario there's a very famous line by gk chesterton that you may have heard before and there's actually a little bit of a story behind this so just hang on for a second but the the line goes quote fairy tales are more than true not because they tell us that dragons exist, but because they tell us that dragons can be beaten, end quote. Now, this line shows up in Coraline, a book by Neil Gaiman. And uh, so Neil Gaiman attributes this quote to G.K. Chesterton. It's not actually what Chesterton said, though. So I did a little digging to find out exactly what Chesterton said. It's a pretty good summary of, of Chesterton's idea. But this comes from a book called The Red Angel. It's a short story, I guess. And uh, what Chesterton actually said in there is, quote, Fairy tales do not give the child his first idea of bogey. What fairy tales give the child is his first clear idea of the possible defeat of bogey. The baby has known the dragon intimately ever since he had an imagination. What the fairy tale provides for him is a St. George to kill the dragon, end quote. That is one of the oldest Christ types in the popular imagination is that story of St. George. And look there, there he is, an actual saint. St. George is a Christ type in that story. Very simple, very elemental. And yet, if you grew up hearing about St. George, then you're probably already primed. Your imagination is ready to receive and accept the idea of Jesus. St. George may be legend, but Jesus Christ is the legend that was true. Okay, so our third point is fantasy trains us to imagine our world and its peoples. Yes, and we're going to we're going to start wrapping up with this one because 
we have followed a rather natural progression from God and the gospel, Jesus and his heroism. Now, you know, instead of looking up, we're looking around us and looking at the world that God has made more directly and the, the people, the human beings who fill this world. Fantasy helps us train to imagine them, to see our world as it is and wonder what it would be like to be not just like Jesus, but another person. What happens after we start truthfully imagining God and the gospel in Jesus? Well, I think that fantasy comes closest to helping us imagine better this world. And we could refer here to all of the many quotes from fantasy authors, including, you know, Lewis and Tolkien, uh, about how we, we are looking at the world more truthfully. You know, we are seeing through the eyes of other people. You know, we're seeing every blade of grass with renewed enchantment. You know, we're looking at the trees and wondering what it would be like if they talked, you know, and got together for an int moot as they do in the two towers. Yet even those quotes, if we just uh, list them out of context, that we may accidentally stumble into treating, you know, our emotional response to this, you know, the wonder, the delight, the excitement. Uh, we may accidentally treat that emotion as its own end. But the wonder that these stories awaken in us to see our world and the people around us uh, does not exist to serve itself. It is not for our benefit specifically. It is so that we can then trace that wonder back to its source. That sense of awe and understanding of this world comes from God. And our God has sent us into this real fantastical world on a gospel mission for our hero. If we are in Jesus and serving him, then we have a job to do, a very hard, very plodding, very ultimately eternally rewarding job uh, to make disciples and train to be like Jesus in this world. It's not just for us. Uh, he doesn't just want us to make great stuff in this world. Or as we said earlier, to be entertained or morally edified. We are meant to make disciples. He wants us in him to train for future resurrection. Uh, from this dead, corrupted uh, humanity, this uh, the state in which we have found ourselves, Jesus pulls us out and sends us on a mission to understand people and reach them as we understand and reach his world. Yeah, I heard a talk by author Indy Wilson last year, and he made this great point that fantasy is simply fan fiction of God's story. You know, that what we read in fantasy novels is just a reflection of even more fantastical things that are going on. And uh, this other fantasy author, Jonathan Rogers, puts it like this, quote, fantasy writers don't dislike this world. We're just writing a love letter to the things of the real world in a weird way, end quote. So I love this idea that what we read in these fantasy stories really turns us back to look at the real things that God has made and the real things he's doing that are so amazing that we fall more in love with the world he's created and the people that he loves. Well, I was speaking with another one of our Lorehaven writers about the, um, the rather acute and I think increasingly important fact that fiction and in particular fantasy is uniquely equipped to help us understand ourselves and other people and the suffering and trauma we've been through. You know, people are responsible for their sinful choices. And, you know, scripture says sin is our default state. It is our nature until Jesus redeems us. But we can also use fiction, use fantasy in particular as means of understanding how this groaning world, how this sinful system that we're in has affected us. And then even better, how we can find healing. Christians are charged with healing 
uh, from these these sufferings that we've been under and reaching other people and understanding how sinful choices and trauma inflicted on us are mixed up all in one person. And that is our calling. We must, we are required to reach people. We are required to be part of Jesus's reclamation project in his world. And because we know that that's required, I would say that to do this task, we need fantastic imagination. Maybe not books, maybe not movies, maybe not something with a superhero, but you at least need the fantastical sensibility. You need to have this capacity for thinking and imagining this way. Stories help us not only follow our hero Jesus and understand the gospel better, but we also see our own natures in a different light. We can see how we suffer. We can see how our neighbors have suffered. Uh, we can use stories, as I mentioned in our past episode. You know, all these materials I see about you know counseling or peacemaking or trying to work through reconciliation or healing from some kind of trauma. There's usually some kind of imaginative element involved. We use our imaginations to see how we've been corrupted, either by our sin and its consequences or by the sins of others against us and the consequences that we could say we cannot help. Stories help us train to be empathetic. We can imagine not just Jesus, but each other. Uh, Zach, I think in the last episode, you have this quote from Lewis. Here we go again, where, you know, in reading and paraphrasing and, you know, in reading you know, all these stories, you know, I can become a thousand men and yet remain myself. That too is an act of humility. If I can humbly and rightfully imagine myself, like what if I were someone else? What if this had happened to me? You know, whether I'm a villain or a hero or more likely someone in between, you know, how would that affect me? I find that even the act of enjoying fantastical fiction, I hope it helps me to interact people even in debates, you know, as a fan or, you know, a political squabble or something, because I may not agree with that person. I may think that, that person, the way that they're acting and believing right now uh, is on course for eternal judgment. And that's terrible, but I can still empathize with that person and I can see how that person in this world would have turned out that way. And of course, continuing the, the humility, you can say there, but by the grace of God, go I. I just realized that that famous quote is itself a fantastical imaginative quote, because in such few words, that person is speculating an alternate history where I could have ended up that way. You know, my, one of my favorite images in all fantasy is Luke, just, just that silent image of Luke Skywalker near the end of Return of the Jedi, you know, looking at his father. Uh, and, and then he looks at his own hand, which his uh, father had cut off in the previous battle. And then he just makes the silent connection. If I keep turning to the dark side, I'm going to end up just like Darth Vader. He doesn't say that, but the story shows you that. And in that, uh, in that showing, that act of showing, uh, it is so powerful. Uh, stories can show those images uh, and in, you know, in books especially. You, know, you get the inner monologue. A well-written book is going to not only show you but explain from the inside, why is this person feeling like that? General fiction can do that, uh, but in a fantastic world, because it's closer to our reality, uh, fantasy can be more realistic. With fantasy, which is the genre of genres, we can see the world and our neighbors, the people around us, and ourselves in different ways and often in ways that are even truer. I think that is the paradox of it, is that the stranger it is, the more powerful it is in helping us see the world clearly. I, I really think that fantastical fiction is the best way that we can impart memorable truth about reality. 
because it's when we enter these strange worlds that are way beyond our normal experience, it totally throws us off. So we pay very close attention and look for what's familiar. And we latch onto these, the, the characters in their beliefs and their behaviors, wh- whether they're human or alien or, you know, some kind of creature. And we start to compare them to ourselves. We look for what the common threads are. And so that, you know, the very strangeness of the genre and of the world, it acts like this giant microscope on our own human nature. You know, earlier, Stephen, you talked about Jotham's story of the talking trees. Well, (laughs) you know, you could read that story and go, well, of course there's no talking trees and sort of blow it off. But the, the correct way to approach that is you look at that, you look at those talking trees and go, hmm, you know, what do I have in common with these trees? Where? What can I learn from them? And what does that say about, about me? Jonathan Rogers says in another quote that uh, imagination stretches us into what we long for. So this kind of goes back to how it's training our imagination. It's, it's developing a greater sense of what's possible and what's true than what we kind of see in our ordinary life. It, it's sometimes the ordinary stories that are really less believable. Because they, again, they, they involve this sort of mechanistic universe where there is no God and there is no miraculous. G.K. Chesterton has this other uh, short novel or short book. I don't exactly know what it is. It's called The Dragon's Grandmother. And so here is where he really lays out the value of fairy tales. He says, quote, I met a man the other day who did not believe in fairy tales. He actually thought that fairy tales ought not to be told to children. The man had come to see me in connection with some silly society of which I am an enthusiastic member. (laughs) Man, I said, who are you that you should not believe in fairy tales? It is much easier to believe in Bluebeard than to believe in you. It is far easier to believe in a million fairy tales than to believe in one man who does not like fairy tales. Folklore means that the soul is sane but the universe is wild and full of marvels. Realism means that the world is dull and full of routine, but that the soul is sick and screaming. The problem of the fairy tale is what will a healthy man do with a fantastic world? The problem of the modern novel is what will a madman do with a dull world? In the fairy tales, the cosmos goes mad, but the hero does not go mad. End quote. That's good. And Chesterton, I have not read as much Chesterton as I want to. I need to. I have, however, listened to an, an audiobook of his nonfiction book, Orthodoxy. I really appreciate his chapter in that book, contrasting madness with mental health. And he talks about, well, where does madness come from? You know, is it the logical, rational person? You know, is it, do you become healthier mentally by being a pure materialist? You know, and he just, he, goes in some very unique directions there that I really need to read again. It's going to help inform a lot of how I see the world. But of course, you know, Chesterton was a uh, speculative author. He wrote fairy tales as well as nonfiction and his, uh, his repertoire stretches across several different genres. So I really need to get into more of that. One other thing I would add here, and this is kind of a, a setup for our next episode about the science fiction uh, in particular as a, as a subset of fantastical fiction. This whole point here, you've noticed that we're talking about, you know, how we empathize with other people and see the world and fantasy helps us do that. 
I have noticed that some apologists for Christian fantasy will start here. We've left it for the last point. We've left it for point three. Uh, and I would like to see more Christians who want to, as we said a couple of episodes ago, if we want to help terraform the church to enjoy and share more of these kinds of stories from Christians, especially, and then we start getting better ones to pursue that goal. I think we need to argue more frequently like this, not starting with, well, you need fantasy to understand your neighbors or you need fantasy to be a better missionary or you need uh, fantasy, you know, this more literary approach, you know, to understand the world. And, you know, some of this language can sound rather highfalutin, but I think particularly for Christians, you know, the normal everyday saints that we meet in our churches who are going to live forever under King Jesus, like those folks and we ourselves need things to start with the first principle. And the first principle is not just neighbors and world, but God. That's our attempt in organizing it here is we put God and the gospel first and Jesus in his heroism. I mean, it's, it's grouped under point two, but that all of that is our first principle. We don't start by looking around us. We need to start by looking up. Our chief end is not to understand the world better or be more literary or creative or even to do evangelism, but our chief end is to glorify God. That is vertical direction. We're looking up before we look down. And in so doing, we are actually more grounded. We're more in touch with the purpose God has made this fantastical world, not just the fantastical world itself and not just this world that God has made past and present, but, and then this gets into the science fiction, fiction aspect. But we know better, I think, through fantastical fiction, where the world is going. Uh, I love talking about the new heavens and new earth and writing about this uh, and on this on this podcast and in my articles. Fantastical fiction, I think, helps us train to expect this amazing renewed paradise that Jesus will make. And that alone, even if this world had no providential timing, no oh, miracles breaking in, even if it had gone completely contemporary and dull, you know, right now where all the miracles were in the past, I expect I literally live my life and want to live my life expecting that someday Jesus will return, actually return. There will probably be a white horse and supernatural, you know, effervescence in the sky and everything. And he will roast the earth of all of its impurities and this whole creation will be reborn as this magnificent capital city of a planet in God's kingdom, in God's universe. Like, if you're living like that is true, uh, then you're going to see the effects ripple back even into the groaning, corrupted creation and the souls around you. And fantasy helps me do that. Even if I never picked up a fantasy novel, I have to have a fantastic imagination to see and start to understand the amazing promises that Jesus has made to resurrect not just souls, not just people, but this entire creation in his future. Well, now let's hear from the fantastic fans. So we have a great uh, letter here we got from John B., who wrote to us after episode 50, which was our, uh, what is the purpose of fiction? What is the chief end of stories? And John says, quote, hey, guys, I love the topic and discussion in episode 50. Congratulations. It reminded me of a conversation I had that's worth sharing. Some time ago, I was lamenting to a friend how I wanted my kids to read more and fight their strong attraction toward online games. He said that he didn't see much difference. One of his children was an online gamer, 
The other was an avid reader. And both options used up hours of their time and was done alone. His pushback made me consider why I felt that reading was superior. What I found was this. Fiction uniquely invites us to become co-creators. An author creates a framework of place, person, and plot, but as the reader, I must create the images and textures of that world in my mind, entering into the creative process. That imaginative responsibility makes the story more powerful and personal, as most creative acts do. And because it's co-creative, it's never really done alone. Reading is always collaborative, even if the author's framework must wait in time and space until I join in with my imagination. Certainly other story forms involve creativity on my part, even video games, but I can't think of anything that invites me to such a high level of collaborative world building than a good work of fiction. And isn't that the world we're actually living in? God as author spoke our world into being and invited us to take the framework he's given us filling it with good things by way of our image-bearing creativity, end quote. Man, that cat is deep. <laughs> Thank you, John. That was, a, that was a wonderful thought. I, I really love everything you said. Thanks for writing us. Amen. And you can be deep or, or otherwise, whatever you want to say in response to this episode or any of the others in this series. Uh, we're going back now, uh, running on a 52 episodes now. And here's the next 52 and beyond you can email us at podcast at lorehaven.com. Uh, if you're looking at these show notes at lorehaven.com, we have both a comment form and a comment section there below. Feel free to use that. Or if you're streaming this over YouTube or any of the other uh, streaming platforms, uh, feel free to leave any comments that we can pick up later. And you can also follow us and tag us on uh, Facebook. Uh, Lorehaven is the name we have on Facebook. Just search for it. We'll pop right up. And you can also do at lorehaven at Twitter. And then one of these days, Zach, we really will get on the Instagram, but because we mostly do podcasts here, uh, there's not a strong visual element, but uh, it's something that we're working on for sure. Next on Fantastical Truth, now that we have explored the chief end of fiction and explored the chief end of fantastical fiction, including fantasy, what about a genre within fantastical stories, the specific genre that is labeled science fiction? These sorts of stories often imagine visions of our own world instead of a fantasy world, and sometimes the world they show us not only ignores these traditional fantasy images like heroes and good versus evil, but ignore the existence of God. These stories may even use technology or theories to explain away what we would otherwise see as supernatural themes. So, we will explore why Christians may actually need science fiction just like we could say that we need fiction and need fantasy. Meanwhile, recognize that you already have a fantastic imagination. God, our supernatural creator, has given this to you so that we can be in right relationship with him through the redemption of Jesus Christ in the gospel and so that we can live better lives as redeemed humans in the fantastical world that God has made around us. Whether or not you enjoy stories that are labeled fantasy we hope that by the end of this episode, at least, uh, you may have some different ways to think about how fantasy helps us become better people, not just for entertainment or distraction or escapism, but for the glory of God and our enjoyment of him forever as we continue to seek and find his fantastical truth.